As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and George Russell claimed his first Grand Prix win as Mercedes ended its 2022 drought with victory in the Brazilian Grand Prix. But at Red Bull, a team orders row erupted with Max Verstappen refusing to see position to teammate Sergio Perez. So how did the Silver Arrows finally top the podium, and what caused the aggravation between the world champion and his teammates? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, you're with me here in, in Sao Paulo, Upper Tower, which sounds quite spectacular, but uh, made a bit of a meal getting in. Yep, yep. We've, uh, we're, we're, we're in a hotel that has... Uh, an extensive number of floors. Unfortunately, my uh, my room is quite near the top, which made it a problem when my key card didn't work. So I had to schlep uh, back down and then back up again. So I've had more ups and downs uh, this evening than uh, Mercedes W13 earlier in the season. Excellent reference there and one relevant to this podcast, but we perhaps should have recorded in my room, which is five floors lower, so at least it would have saved some of that uh, messing about. And also watching from afar is Mark Hughes. Brazilian Grand Prix can always be guaranteed to produce interest, can't it? It's just one of those places. It's just a perfect circuit layout for racing, isn't it? It just invites drama and incident uh, never failed to deliver in that way and um, the sprint format I think is particularly well suited to it and so um, yeah we, we got we got two two really interesting races didn't we yeah it was one also when the sprint and the race connected up nicely and and set things up very well so that gives us plenty to talk about which is why we're going to pile into it without any further ado so Scott we'll start with you we will get on to the Mercedes elusive victory and George Russell's breakthrough shortly but we'll start off with the Red Bull team orders route it's certainly the topic that's drawn the most questions from the race members club for this podcast and that's one of the reasons why we're starting with it this happened late in the race when Perez let Verstappen by for sixth place Verstappen was subsequently ordered to let him back by right at the end but did not the first question on this comes from Tamara Salter who asks after Checo let Max through to try and overtake Alonso and Leclerc why did Max refuse team orders to let Checo back through on the last lap does it go back to Monaco we also had a similar question from Dan Booth who asked what's the beef there given Sergio has been a very good supportive teammate uh, yes it, uh, I think it does go back to, to Monaco M- Max and, and Red Bull won't go into much detail about this they want to try and keep as much of this private as possible but let's put it this way Max was asked point blank at least twice once on television once with us the written media was this to do with Monaco he didn't exactly deny it I believe when he was pushed by uh, pushed by Sky Sports F1 uh, on this in television I think he had a smile on his face when when he declined to to confirm um, and I, I think it does go back, back to Monaco which is when um, Checo had been stronger than Verstappen through the weekend but Verstappen was just getting it together in uh, towards the end of qualifying. Checo was faster on the first runs in Q3. 
Max was then on a, a on a better lap, a lap that he felt would have got him ahead of Checo on the grid and therefore probably put him in position to win the race that Checo ultimately won on the Sunday, except Verstappen didn't get to finish that lap because Perez had a suspicious or strange look looking crash at the time. It, unusual, it was, certainly. It was unusual, yeah. It definitely looked weird. Crash at Portier. Honestly, can't remember the last time I saw a Grand Prix driver crash there in, in, in qualifying, certainly not the way Checo did boot full of throttle way earlier in the corner than anyone else would normally get on the throttle. Usually you need Jensen Button's help to have a crash there, as Pascal Verloin <laughs> discovered a few years ago. Exactly, exactly. So it was a strange crash at the time. It did have a significant impact on on Verstappen's session and, and, and weekend in that it didn't it meant he didn't get the result that he felt he should. I remember him being very angry about it at the time. If you remember, a day or two after that, we had that very strange and very punchy Jos Verstappen um, column effectively on Max's official website criticising Red Bull for not doing more to help Max win the race and not favouring him over Checo. It, it really it caused a bit of a stink at the time, which was, if it was such an innocuous incident, was a bit weird. So anyway, this basically goes back to that. Ma- Max won't say it as in such terms, but it does. And this is basically Max's revenge. He, he, he He's basically been point scoring. He basically says, we're even now. So he wouldn't help him today because of that. But he will help him in Abu Dhabi because I think as far as he's concerned, the scores are settled and they've um, dealt with it now within the team. We've got a load of questions on this, as I mentioned. So the next one, Mark, is about the wider impact of this. Chris Partridge asks, how big a mistake has Verstappen made by not letting Perez through for the longer term? And Rick McQuaid asks if this will have a profound impact on their relationship as teammates going forward. After all, it was only last year that Checo was helping Max and hindering his own races to help the Drivers' Championship. Short memory, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, we don't even need to go. We can go back um, to Spain this year, um, where he, he he let um, he let Max through twice after Max had uh, been off at turn four, and that was um, pretty crucial in helping Max win that race. Uh, yeah, he has been a, a terrific teammate, um, but ultimately, no, I think they'll find a way to work through it. Um, ultimately, Sergio doesn't doesn't want to. Um, be driving for any other team this is a fantastic opportunity so it's in his interest to to make it work and i think he will um, probably uh, keep any 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 further thoughts he has on it to himself and for the sake of uh, harmony but it's it's very definitely verstappen's team and he he would be ill-advised to try and take any stance of, of you know it's um it's it's him or me because um, the an- the answer would be pretty pretty obvious and pretty clear. So yeah, I think it's probably going to make things a little bit uh, a little bit tense in Abu Dhabi. You know, when when they have the next debrief, but uh, it's a longer term, we've got to see. You got to, an off season to get over it and forget about it. I think um, it'll be gone, especially if, um, if 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 Max then does live up to his word and play his part in um, helping um, Checo in Abu Dhabi. Ultimately, Perez probably has to be pragmatic about it. I must admit, I was slightly surprised Verstappen didn't heed the team order because, obviously, it's a team order, so you really should follow it. Drivers should do that. But also, really, he was being asked to give up a sixth place. It's meaningless, really, isn't it, in the in the grand scheme of things. Basically, he'd have got some goodwill from his teammate for a whole bag of nothing, really. So I was slightly surprised he didn't do it. But obviously, he gave his reasons, as he indeed said in that late race radio message. Scott, Carl Reed has a first members question on his podcast. So welcome, Carl. And asks, should Christian Horner put his foot down and show who's boss by dropping Max for the final race? Max's attitude puts the Red Bull management in a hard position. It simply looks like a power play that they've never seen before. Even in the hardest of Vettel versus Weber times, there wasn't that immediate and, quite frankly, blatant stamp of feet and throwing toys out of the pram as we heard on the radio in Sao Paulo um I I I get I get where you're coming from um I I disagree that we haven't seen this before like the 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 most infamous moment of the Vettel Weber era was the multi-21 scenario in in Malaysia where obviously there was something much bigger at stake and, and Vettel proved that he will put his own interests before that of of the team's um, or certainly ahead of the team's wishes and instructions to to suit his own agenda, and, and we've we've seen a different version of that today from Verstappen. I think there were echoes of multi twenty one in what we saw today, just obviously not in quite as uh, 
significant um significant a fashion. I don't think um I don't think Horner should bench bench Verstappen, partly because I don't I don't think it would be worth the I, I think trying to prove a point like that at the cost of ensuring that your best chance of winning the final race of the season goes out the window. I don't think that's worth it. Um, but also, I think in terms of this being a power play, kind of. I, I, again, I, I get where that's coming from, but I think it's more. I think we just see now, like who who is the most influential figure within that team? It's Verstappen. That there's a reason that, that I don't think that someone like Horner will really come out and properly put Verstappen in his place over that because ultimately Verstappen's Verstappen's such an important asset to that team. I. <laughs> I kind of feel like he can get away with anything in in that organization. Obviously, I think if he did something absolutely horrific, then maybe he'd get criticized. But then I think you're in that sort of Weber Vettel was Turkey 2010 um when Vettel just got immediately um supported even though that was his fault when they, when they collided at Istanbul. So I think Verstappen knows he has a certain degree of immunity. I think he used that today to... That's why he knew he could make the decision that he made, prove the point that he wanted to prove. The the thing for me is more just like, what? it's just such a silly trade-off. Like, if you're going to cash that in, you you, want to have a little bit more of a payback for it than what he got today. This this just... If you want to... If you want to play that card... I feel like you've got to do it when there's something more at stake than than, than this. This this seemed a bit silly. It just seemed a bit spiteful for no reason. Yeah, it's not going to be a race he looks back on at the end of his career and say, yeah, that's sixth place at Interlagos. That really sticks in my mind. I'm glad I kept hold of that rather than... Yeah, thank, uh, <laughs> oh, thank, oh, thank God I, you know, risk, thank, thank God I risked burning all my bridges just to make sure I got that place at Interlagos. Exactly. But ultimately, it is Verstappen's team. So I guess he felt he, he had the power. I, mean, I, th- I think the general impacts and the level of the acrimony I do think there were similarities in the Vettel Weber era where I think the difference is that the world has evolved a little bit since then yeah social media was still a thing then but everything gets out got out in a slightly different way at that stage so I would say kind of on the ground in the paddock on the team it, it was pretty intense through a lot of that time so I think there's some similarities even though the exact circumstances aren't the same Mark Urban from Slovenia hello Slovenia Asks if you think there will be team orders in Abu Dhabi so Perez can get second place. Um, yes, quite possibly. And um, Christian Horner did um, even uh, um, say he would expect to, to see team orders. Um, more likely, this was before the incident. This was before the race. He said uh, when when asked if um, if there would be some team orders. At this race, he said, "No, I think you're more likely to see team orders in Abu Dhabi." So, yeah, it's it's definitely something that's been discussed, and it was part of the discussion after the race as well. So, I think uh, if it's um, if it's necessary, uh, depending on where Leclerc is in the race as well, of course, um, I think we could well see uh, some team orders, um, and probably with uh, Verstappen's full cooperation on this occasion. Yeah, he does seem to have given the indication that will happen. And a final question on this topic, Scott. There was also a slight disagreement between Perez and Red Bull in the sprint race, and Checo asked if he could switch places with Max. Why not swap positions? It was only one point, but it would have given Checo a better starting position for the Grand Prix too. And I'm going to let you know who asked that question in a moment, because I've not written it down. So while you answer that, I'll just double-check. Excellent. Good organisation. I think quite simply that at that point in the weekend, I don't think it was worth it. Ultimately... Um, the first priority I think is for Rebel to try and win these last two races going into this weekend um, and just pragmatically Verstappen is your best chance of doing that and there are more points to be won on the Sunday so and I, I know this sounds like such a silly thing to be pointing out in the it, now we have the hindsight of the fact that Verstappen didn't then didn't then help Perez pick up uh, a bit a couple of extra points on the Sunday. But I think just at that time, it wasn't worth compromising Verstappen's grid position for, for, for the Grand Prix. And Perez was already beating Leclerc. Uh, so, do you know what I mean? There was already a gain coming Perez's way. The race was set up quite well. I think Rebel would have expected to fight or beat the Ferraris on Sunday anyway. 
I think it was too early in the weekend to try and manipulate the result like that. What Red Bull should have done, which is is exactly what they did do, which is then try and instruct Verstappen to move aside late in the Grand Prix, having given him the opportunity to go and take points off of Leclerc. That was the reason for letting him get ahead of Perez. And it was like, right, okay, chase down Alonso and Leclerc and try and get ahead of them. So I actually think Red Bull played this correctly. It's just, unfortunately, they, they had a driver that was deciding to act with belligerence for, for no real reason. And I've now discovered that excellent question was from John from Chicago. So thank you for that one. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, let's move on to Mercedes and George Russell now. Mark, this was a huge day for Russell. Getting that first Grand Prix victory means so much. How exactly did he and Mercedes pull this off? As it was a sprint weekend, I guess the question here is, how were the races won? Yeah, I mean, what we've seen, we've seen an increasingly competitive Mercedes as the season's worn on with, with ups and downs, but the upgrade that they brought in Austin, which wasn't just the aerodynamic bits that we could see, was also a significant weight saving. Um, has that's that's been a really useful step. It's really pushed the car on. And if you remember two weeks ago in Mexico, um, George was neck and neck with Verstappen for um, pushing for pole position until he ran wide near the end of the lap. So the car was absolutely fully competitive in Mexico as well. It's just that George um, made that error on his lap and then Mercedes chose the wrong tyres on race day. Uh, otherwise, we could have we could have easily seen a similar thing going on there. But here, the, the Red Bull really was in trouble. It was... Um, it was lacking front end grip. It was you know when the the track temperature changed, especially when it became colder. Uh, it had a real balance problem, and the front tire deg was pretty awful. And it didn't really matter which compound of tire it went on; that was the case. And so they figured that even twenty four laps of the sprint was probably a little bit ambitious for a set of softs that were degging so hard. Hence, they went on to the medium, which just made the problem even worse because of the the. the tire was just slower and it's still decked so red bull was out the equation so you're not comparing you know a fully on form red bull with the mercedes but that's all it takes now the mercedes is good enough that it just takes the red bull to slip a little bit and it's there and couple that with the fact that this was a sprint format and so it's usual um first lap qualifying uh shortfall uh, wasn't really the the full picture because you, you, the, the 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 grid for the main event was of course determined by the results of the sprint, and he only qualified third and eighth for the for the sprint. Um, you know, the, no, no, a normal weekend that might have been their grid positions for the um, for the for the main event. So those two things combined put them in a very strong position, but it was throughout the weekend the fastest car. Um, it. it, it it's only that little shortfall on first lap uh, qualifying that that, that that it wasn't. So uh, yeah, with with the front row locked out, um, George just had uh, Lewis Hamilton to beat, and <laughs> it's not just, is it? It's Lewis Hamilton. It's um, formidable, but yeah, he did it. He out qualified him. He beat him off the start, and then of course Hamilton had his dramas, and then. It looked like it was going to be really straightforward for George from that point, uh, even when Lewis got back up to second, because it was a very distant second. But then, of course, there was the late safety car, which re reset everything. Uh, and um, 
yeah, Georgie's even trying to get the race called off sort of half-heartedly. He knew, he knew what the answer was going to be when he said, should we just accept the one, two, or are we, are we going to race? Um, he knew what the answer was going to be because it had already been discussed before the race what would happen in such a situation. So, yeah, um, it, was, it was deeply impressive what he did fr- from that point onwards and um, pulled out just enough to keep himself out of uh, Lewis's DRS reach and just made every lap count and um, just made not a single error under in really intense pressure. It was a, it was a sort of um, drive that, that looked so composed and so professional. It looked like someone who'd been winning Grand Prix for years rather than um, someone taking their first victory. It, it felt like Russell was sort of answering every question that you could have asked of him in the last few events. We, we've we talked about this on a couple of the recent podcasts, really, where George has been on this almost self-described dip in form. You go back to that 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 scrappy Singapore Grand Prix, um, f- feeling slightly off it pace-wise at a couple of races, obviously um, stumbling into Carlos Sainz at the start of the United States Grand Prix, for example, just not quite having Hamilton's pace in Mexico and just not not seeming on top of the car, in, whether it's in qualifying or the race for, for a while. I think he said... Um, I think you said a few races ago that he just hasn't felt like he's been on the level he was at the start of the year. And I I didn't quite believe that. I kind of thought that actually we've just seen that a, a more representative Hamilton benchmark than we saw in the first seven or eight races when Mercedes was at the peak of all of its experimenting. But I think there is some evidence that maybe George hasn't quite gone with the car as well as Lewis has uh, as that car has got better. Um, so you've had this run of races where his outright qualifying pace has potentially been questioned in that I mean ultimately he's still very close to Lewis but he hasn't he hadn't quite beaten him properly in, in, in qualifying um his race craft have been questioned Singapore and the United States um and just that sort of okay is is this going away from you this this, this season now so there's this sort of swell of questions and then this weekend just just really emphatically answered all of them uh, okay there was the obvious blot on the copybook with that that off in, in qualifying he was lucky that he wasn't punished for that um more harshly but on the flip side of that he'd done the job on his first lap in, in 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 q3 to get that third on the grid the sprint race drive to to beat verstappen the way he raced him wheel to wheel the way he was um you could tell he was he was lining that move up on the outside down to turn four for a few laps that sort of forcing verstappen to defend into the start of the center s carry the speed through the corner and then and he just got better and better at it and eventually pulled the move off that was brilliant and then yeah as Mark was just explaining just a faultless Grand Prix in which he at various points had an awful lot of pressure and just handled it really well I thought the weekend overall was generally just a really good reminder of of why Mercedes rates George so highly yeah he just had great command of the situation great calmness great mental capacity to deal with it. I know that's not really a surprise because we've seen that from him before, but winning your first Grand Prix is such a big deal, even if you have had, even if you have had the sprint race <laughs> as uh, a warm-up. Scott, there's a question from Yanis van der Waal who asks, to what extent can we classify this win of Mercedes as a pure win? And to what extent is it a win because Red Bull had it set up wrong, meaning they profited from the structure of the weekend because of the sprint? Yeah, I think it has to be a, a proper win. Um I, I I take the point that, that that Red Bull was clearly on a on a trajectory that was just getting worse in over the course of the the, the weekend, but ultimately Grand Prix weekends aren't about you you, I, you can't race hypothetically you can't you can't judge Grand Prix weekends on ah well this doesn't count because this team should have done a better job it's almost it almost just detracts from the fact that there is so much to piece together and Mercedes just pieced this to get this weekend together. Put it this way. If that car wasn't quick enough to, to win the sprint race and win the Grand Prix, then just because Red Bull got it slightly wrong, doesn't mean that Mercedes would have won it anyway. Do you see what I mean? Like the car has to be good enough to be in there. There's a reason that Mercedes won the Grand Prix today and not a Ferrari, for example, or the second Red Bull or whatever way you want to look at it. So, this was this was authentic, and they've been trending towards this for a while. I, I didn't expect this. I did think that this was looking like it would be a weekend that went in Verstappen's favour, but obviously, basically from the pretty early on in the sprint race, I think we could see that the Rebel didn't have the pace of the 
of the Mercedes. So I, I think this is um, I think this is fully legit, and I think it's um, I think it's reward for the constant development through probably further into the season than a Ferrari, for example, from from Mercedes. So yeah, I think. Uh, I, I, I can't I can't take away from it just because there were a couple of other factors at, at play that blunted Red Bull's attack, for example. The phrase I always use is winning on merit, and I think this was winning on merit. An extreme example of not winning on merit was, for example, Ocon in Hungary last year, because that was very circumstantial. Great performance from Ocon to win under pressure from Vettel, but it was circumstantial, whereas I think this was on merit for Mercedes. Mark, a question from Daniel Gregory on the car performance who asks, have Mercedes found a way to reduce the drag this weekend? They've looked fast on some weekends this year, but their straight line speed deficit has been such that it looked impossible for them to pass the Red Bull on track, yet George managed it in the sprint. Yeah, I think part of what we're seeing in, in the Largus was that um, the because of the, the tyre situation, the Red Bull wasn't um, very good through Yunkau, uh, which is the corner at the bottom of the hill. So it was uh, much slower than the Mercedes entering that long drag. Um, and despite that, it was still managing just to be going a little bit faster by the end of the, the pit straight. And that's where you saw its drag advantage. But it was it was having to claw back more of a deficit, if you see what I mean, than it usually does out of the corner. Um, I think it's still the, the Merck still a, a draggier car, and we'll see a, a, you know that 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 pattern between the the straight line and the corner performance. Um, I think will be more conventional in Abu Dhabi. So I don't think it's a trend now. I think it is circuit specific. Shall we move on to a question and a topic, in fact, that will remind us very much of last year, specifically the Hamilton Verstappen clash? Obviously, we've got to talk about that, Mark. Verstappen got a five-second penalty for that collision. Would you say that's the right outcome? No, I don't think anybody should have got a penalty for that. I thought it was a racing incident. Um, Very much like several of Hamilton Verstappen's accidents last year, Either one of them could have avoided the collision, but they weren't obliged to. They were racing, and each one was effectively daring the other one to go through with it. And they just both stuck to their guns, and the contact was made. And that's what can happen in racing, in hard racing. Um, And I think the stewards would have been better advised to just let that one go. Yeah, I would agree with you on on that one. I know we're... Always sounding a little bit like a stuck record on some of these incidents, but there is such thing as a, a racing incident. I get why the stewards applied the way the racing rules are structured as they did, and perhaps we'll get you in a minute, Scott, just to explain their verdict. But to me, I just think in terms of sound racing logic, Verstappen was kind of entitled to be there. There was an element of risk on both sides, and uh, and they came together, but yeah, just uh, not quite the way things work this time. So, yeah, no penalty for me. But, Scott, perhaps you can explain what the stewards had to say um well yeah i can i can try because ultimately we we, we've had these racing guidelines driving standards whatever you want to call them um since the start of the year which was a an effort and and i think a i think a merited effort one one in principle i i have no issue with to try to just clarify what is acceptable and what isn't because we had this spate of run-ins basically between verstappen and hamilton last year and there were a few others as well but I think for example turn four in Brazil in 2021 is just a great example of why F1 I think needed to just explain what what was and wasn't um, permissible so basically what the stewards said is that they they felt that even though Verstappen briefly got ahead with his move on the outside into to turn one he never completed the pass mid, midway through that corner because you do have to take turns one and two as as one sequence, really. Hamilton got back in front, so Verstappen didn't complete his pass. Um, so while the stewards felt that Hamilton could have given a bit more room at the apex of turn two, um, ultimately they, they felt that Verstappen was predominantly uh, at fault because he was basically the, the attacking car on the inside. And they didn't say this, but so we have to use the guidelines from the start of the year to to infer that this is the reasoning but the guidelines state that if you are deemed to be the car that's attacking on the inside you need to have your you need to have your your front wheel your front tires um alongside the other car now that's re- that's actually quite vague because Verstappen's front front tires were alongside Hamilton's 
car. They, he, they, they were alongside 95% of Hamilton's car, but they were, he wasn't fully alongside Hamilton's front axle, his front tyres. I can only assume that that is the reference now, which I think is a really difficult thing to try and quantify. This is... Um, it's 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 a it's a fast moving multi dimensional three D piece of just live action that we are trying to put a binary two D measurement on, and I I just don't see how that can work in reality. I think it's a nice idea in principle, but like <sighs> races, racing doesn't happen in you know, screen grabs and freeze frames and specific, these little snapshots of moments in time. And you kind of have to view it as, like I say, one sort of fluid action, one one big sequence of events. And when you do that, I completely agree with Mark. You have a driver in Verstappen who's being aggressive on the inside and could do more to avoid the incident. You have a driver on the outside in Hamilton who's not leaving much space, enough space for Verstappen. Both could have avoided this incident. Neither did. It's a racing incident. That's all it is. But the way we've created, or the way the FIA have created these guidelines for this year, meant that they, they've created a situation where Verstappen is to blame in that circumstance. And we seem to have somehow ended up in a culture of F1 where if someone's to blame, they have to get a penalty for it. So we've come to a situation here where I don't actually think Verstappen's responsible for that incident. Yet at the same time, he has to be penalised for it. Like, it's the right decision to penalise him based on the rules that we've got. Even though I don't think he actually was the one who did a great deal wrong there. It's, it's just it's just a bit of a mess, to be honest. What you said there, I completely agree with in terms of the fact that the racing rules don't describe everything, particularly when you've got a multi-part corner sequence like this. So I won't repeat myself too much, but yeah, it was always going to cause problems and, it, and it's starting to. There's another question on this from Jack Aitken, the Australian one, I believe, rather than the ex-Williams racer, who says, A few years ago, the FIA pledged to let the drivers race and be more lenient towards racing incidents. But lately, it feels like any kind of on-track contact results in a time penalty. Has the FIA's attitude changed? That's it, you, Scott. You've half answered that one, but has the FIA's attitude changed on the let them race doctrine? Um, yeah, I I think so. Possibly as a result of obviously what we've seen over the last 12, 18 months. Like I say, like these guidelines came in specifically because of incidents that we saw last year. I think my biggest concern with it is it, it, the specifics of how they handle it have changed. I don't think the desire to let them race has changed. I mean, they still want to try and encourage that as much as possible. But we're just in a position, like I say, where this culture has shifted. I don't really know when it happened. I, 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 has it been a gradual thing? Can can you two sort of pinpoint a moment where you think actually we went into this environment of apportioning blame? Because I do feel like, I do f- genuinely feel like the days of being able to dismiss something as a racing incident uh, that it feels like that it feels like a bit of a relic now. It's just something that's kind of crept up over the years, hasn't it? There's been a general trend towards this and I think also that let them race doctrine kind of got overtaken by the desire we we're talking about earlier to slice and dice every incident down to a set of geometries and who does what etc and as you're explaining earlier you back yourself into a corner don't you so it's like an emergent property of the way they've tried to tackle and regulate incidents that's made it so extremely finickety now yeah I blame Twitter <laughs> well that's always uh, popular at this sort of uh, this sort of time the last question on this mark comes from Oscar Robledo which is in your opinion does Max race differently against Lewis compared to other drivers? Uh, yes, I think he does. I think that's that's true. Um, there is this um, absolute refusal to compromise and to always be sort of laying laying down the gauntlet. And sometimes Hamilton responds to that, and sometimes he doesn't. And that makes the thing, the whole thing, unpredictable. And uh, yeah. Today we saw one of the occasions when he chose not to, but I, you know, as I said before, both are entitled to take that approach. It's part of racing. It's it's just part of establishing the the dynamic between two two rivals, and that's just how racing is. 
yeah, well, racing's been going a long time with those sorts of rules and that way of doing things in place. And fundamentally, that's how things get sorted out when push comes to shove. Let's quickly catch up on progress in the world of Grid Rival. Grid Rival, of course, is the fancy motorsport game in which you pick a team of five drivers and a constructor to score points for you, managing their contract lengths and your budget to defeat fellow F1 fans. The race has its own league in which I've been doing battle with Scott. A healthy 1,011 points for me this week with Valtteri Bottas doing a good job as my double points talent driver but I didn't have race winner George Russell, so I'm not sure if I'll have beaten you or not, Scott. It pains me to say this, Ed, but unfortunately you didn't beat me because yet again I've absolutely smashed it. it is, uh, I'm on this massive run now of uh, four-figure scores. Um, I've got um, Fernando Alonso as my star driver, my talent driver, to, to thank for my uh, heroic score this week, uh, ably supported by Lewis Hamilton, Valtteri Bottas, sadly Kevin Magnussen, Carlos Sainz and Red Bull were, were my team. So I honestly thought I was on for some um, heroics with Magnussen at, at, one, at one stage, but obviously his DNF, so thank you, Daniel Ricciardo, um, has uh, has put paid to that. So my um, my second half surge up the up the race league table, it continues. I'm up to, I think, 150th now. Um, but... Uh, this was um, this week did actually put an end to my really good run of of outscoring the the league leader every week for like the last five weeks. I did catch up on um, old mate Jackie this week, but um, I think our good friend Raniel Ricardo has um, has pulled away slightly this this time. So um, yeah, work to do. But I can I, my my ascent continues. I am the Mercedes of the grid rival, the race league this season. Yeah, potentially decisive lead now in the overall league for Raniel Ricardo, as you alluded to, over Jackie 789-58103. A big week, a 248-point lead now, thanks to having Russell and a hefty haul from Fernando Alonso as talent driver. <laughs> Funnily enough, as seems to now happen every week, these tyres are dead was the week's top scorer on 1,173 points to take an outside chance of winning the league into the final race. So well done all for doing significantly better than me. There's still time to sign up for the final race to get a rolling start for 2023 so download the grid rival app or visit the website to get involved the link is in the episode description for this very podcast right getting back to the brazilian grand prix mark ferrari had its own extremely low level team orders discussion with Charles Leclerc asking if he could be like past Carlos Sainz to finish third Pitbull didn't oblige him on that one but Leclerc did finish fourth despite dropping to the back when Lando Norris booted him into the wall early on so how did he pull that one off yeah I mean he, he did um he did a, a pretty steady sort of progress through the through the the, the the back of the field and the midfield and just picking them off when he could without you know caning the tires um, and that sort of floated them up to a very distant sixth place um, and then we got the the the, the safety car for um, Lando Norris's broken down McLaren. And that brought all of those cars that had been very distant from him right within his range. And um, yeah, he picked off uh, Valtteri Bottas and, and then that, he had the dice with um, Sergio Press and uh, he was on a better tyre than Checo was. Checo was on the medium, which was, a, as we discussed earlier, a bit of a, a disastrous tyre, really, for the, this weekend. And so, yeah, that, that, that got him the other place. And then, yeah, he just fell short of um, convincing the team to um, give him the other one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, fourth place, pretty good uh, outcome, all things considered. Yeah, and it means Leclerc and Perez go to Abu Dhabi dead level on points for second in the championship. Leclerc is ahead on count back, but that one's going to go right down to the wire. And we did also, Scott, have another weekend where there was a little bit of Ferrari comedy in, in qualifying in those wet conditions with the stuff with Leclerc being on intermediates when everyone else was on slicks in Q3 and being a bit irritated and some general confusion about tyres throughout that that session. This was a little bit of a relapse almost for Ferrari, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't. Um, they didn't cover themselves in glory and there, there just seemed to be a bit of disorganisation, a bit of poor communication, a bit of just simply poor decision-making. And yeah, just... Everything that you don't want to see if you want to believe that Ferrari is going to make progress from one of its core limitations, 
not just from this season, but but previous seasons. And we were having a conversation with someone earlier this weekend where we talked about, you know, just is Ferrari actually going to 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 make the progress it needs to? And I think we've seen some races actually in the second half of this season that genuinely look like Ferrari is sort of chipping away at, at those lingering deficiencies. But then you have something like this, and I just kind of feel like I don't I don't really have that confidence. The only thing I would say is I agree with them for not swapping their cars at the end of that race. Like, like there was, I get what Leclerc's saying, and I and I spoke to him at the end of the Grand Prix, and he was clearly annoyed. And I don't think he quite agreed with me when I sort of suggested, well, surely Ferrari's logic was this, but he wasn't that far in front of. Alonso and then in turn Verstappen Ferrari is clinging to second in the Constructors Championship over Mercedes and that's worth a lot more to them than Leclerc finishing second in the drivers it really would not have taken much for signs moving aside for Leclerc to go wrong enough for him to lose one or two more positions and then all of a sudden a 19 point lead becomes 17 or 15 points and the way Mercedes is trending at the moment versus the way Ferrari's trending, that's not that's hardly an insurmountable gap. So I think Ferrari needed to put the team's interests above Leclerc's today, even though he wasn't massively convinced that that was the 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 right decision. Although there was a suggestion that this wasn't actually Ferrari's logic at all, and that they were concerned about signs potentially getting a penalty for a Yuki Tsunoda-related infraction and therefore didn't want him to lose any race time in case that was the case. So who really knows what was uh, what was at play there? Yeah, I think practically speaking, it probably made sense not to start trying to be too clever uh, about these things. Let's move on to the battle further down the order, Scott. Fernando Alonso came through to fifth despite starting down in 17th. Esteban Ocon backing him up in eighth. That's a 19-point lead now for Alpine in the battle for fourth in the Constructors' Championship. Is that near enough job done? despite the intra-team friction this weekend? Yes, I think it is. Um, and I think this was a fantastic reward for Alpine's completely correct zero-tolerance policy on the driver nonsense that wrecked their sprint race and could have resulted in uh, you know, a very different kind of outcome um, from, from, from the weekend. But, but yeah, I think in terms of that Constructors' Championship battle, uh, we've seen usually... Usually a swing like we saw in in this event, it normally goes the other way, doesn't it? Where you have the Alpines are tracking towards a good points finish and McLaren are on the back foot, but then reliability problems before the Alpine and McLaren suddenly make a big gain. And actually it was a rare occasion where it was a reliability that let McLaren down this time and Alpine benefited from that um, quite handsomely and they've now got the sort of advantage that I'd be amazed if they lose it in Abu Dhabi, I think McLaren would probably have to get um, one of one of their biggest point scores of the year. I think, I think they might have scored more than twenty points on a weekend twice this season. Um, so they would ha- it would have to be like a top three points haul for the year, and Alpine to have an absolute shocker for them to 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 overturn it now. Yeah, it was just at. Uh... Imola and then later in the season in Singapore that they had such a uh, a big return so yeah very very unlikely for them I think it was an electrical problem that put Norris out uh, in the end he was a uh, battling a little bit of illness all weekend that restricted his laps in FP2 he was keeping his paddock presence down to a, a minimum but seemed to be doing okay but then yeah had that incident with Leclerc that got him a penalty in the race and then uh, subsequently retired although the retirement was nothing to do with him so yeah a, a big blow for McLaren Mark we mustn't ignore Hass in this podcast Kevin Magnussen of course put it on pole position on Friday pole for the sprint race but to my mind rightly credited in the official pole position statistics for the sake of posterity finished eighth in the sprint race obviously retired because of that Ricardo incident but how much of that pole position was down to luck and how much was skill and execution oh no I think there's a lot of skill and execution there's um yeah this uh, there was only a little there was only a little window that sort of one one and a bit lapped where the the, the track was good for um, slick tyres, so you you needed to be out there, but you needed to be um, 
confident and pushing on that lap because he was straight into it because that was going to be the lap that counted because the, the, the rain was on its way. So, yeah, there was um, execution in terms of they were uh, they understood the importance of get, getting, getting to the end of the pit lane first, and they did. Um, and then there was Kevin's uh, confidence with, with the car. He was... Um, you could see on on his outlap, um, he was uh, very very good under braking. He was had a lot of confidence. The, the the car seemed to fire up its front tires very quickly, a bit like the Ferrari with which it shares its a lot of its components. So that was probably a factor, but it just sort of seemed to build his confidence. He was ready to attack as soon as he went into that lap, and that was absolutely crucial. And if you watch the inboards of the, his lap and um, Max Verstappen who qualified second, um, Kevin's is a much more composed, tidy lap. And I think that's just a function of um, how much confidence he'd built up in the car and how, how well it had switched its tyres on. So, yeah, there was um, an, an element of, look, and that the the window was pretty firmly shut, you know, it, it, just a couple of minutes later. So potentially faster cars didn't get the opportunity to um, to, to knock them down the order. But that, that's all, you, you, you know, you, you, there was um, definitely skill involved in making the most of that opportunity. It's classic Magnuson, really, isn't it? It's there's an opportunity and the circumstances there, and he kind of wakes up. He's had some fairly weak weekends when he's not seemed especially uh, engaged in the whole thing lately. But then he's got a chance. He just executes a really, really good weekend. Scott, I suspect this one will be a fairly short discussion, but he was clattered into by Ricardo on that first lap, three place grid penalty in retirement for the McLaren man. Is it a fair cop? Yeah, I think it was. Um, for all that we said earlier about you know racing incidents and disliking the fact that we always need to seem to apportion blame. I, I I do think that a completely 100% one-sided incident like this, that also has devastating consequences for the person that you are committing that offence against, as it was in this situation. I, I do think that's that's legitimate to, to penalise. Yeah, and I don't think there can be too much objection from Danny Ricardo on that one, certainly. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, as always, we'll round off our race review podcast with a series of quickfire questions from the Race Members Club. Scott, first up, for you from Thomas Knight, who asks, is it fair to say this is a weekend where we saw the best and worst of Fernando Alonso? A wonderful fighting drive and great overtakes, but yet another fallout when leaving a team and a silly incident with Esteban Ocon. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. He was um, clumsy and a bit belligerent on Saturday in the in the sprint race. Um, and I also felt he was a bit unprofessional and just needlessly spiky off track. Uh, with some of the comments he made, needless dig at Alonso, uh, needless dig at Ocon, sorry. Uh, and I, I, re- I don't know why it bothered me so much, but I, I, I thought it kind of lacked class that oh, I just want to get in and test the green car now. He's basically saying I don't care about these last two weekends. My main focus is to get in the Aston Martin, which is obviously the team we'll be driving for next year. And I never th- went with this. I, d- I didn't think I'll. Oh, you know, Alonso's going to phone in the last two races. Not not at all. Like, he's such a competitive person and he's been on such amazing form. And when I looked at that sprint race performance after he came out from his pit stop and I saw that he'd lost as much time to race winner, sprint race winner George Russell over the next 21 laps or so as Leclerc and Perez did, I thought, wow, Alonso in the, in the Alpine is really, really quick. I think he could 
And I think I even wrote this that don't be surprised if he comes from the back to score a really good result on 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 Sunday, which is exactly what happened. So absolutely best and worst of him on track the way and just his level of performance is, is not the problem. But I do think we've got to a point now where Alonso's a bit jaded with Alpine and the situation he's found himself in, the missed opportunities this year. And that has just sort of spilled over a little bit with whatever word you want to use for it. it it's just it's just a needless bit of animosity, I think. And it's it, it's sh- it's a shame that there is at least an air of bitterness around the, the, the end of this chapter, you know, his third with Team Endstone. Next question to you, Mark, which is on a related topic, comes from Oscar Robledo, who asks, why did Alonso get a penalty for losing his front wing during the sprint? Um, he got a his penalty for um, driving into the back of Ocon, really, um, and then the front wing came off as a result of that. So <laughs> I think it's, it wasn't a penalty for his wing coming off, was it? It was a penalty for the circumstances that led to that happening, but it, it was a strange mistake, wasn't it? And not dissimilar to what a few races ago. Yeah, exactly. I think um, the there are parallels um, with the the Alonso stroll coming together in Austin. Um, in that Alonso was trying to figure out which direction to go on the car that he was catching, and tried to to leave it as late as possible, and just left it a fraction of a second too late. And um, I think in in Austin there was. Uh, Stroll was to blame as well because he he veered left, or, you know, pretty late, um, or, or just just as he did with the, his incident with Vettel uh, here. Um, but uh, you know, I think um, in either either case, uh, Alonso wasn't blameless. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with what Ocon did in that specific incident. Uh, in this case, Scott. Danny Elliott has a question about the driver who finished 17th and last in the race. He asks, what happened to Sonoda on the safety car restart? I saw cars 6 and 23 could unlap themselves. That's two Williams drivers. So I had no clue Sonoda was also lapped. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to need you to chime in here if I get some of this wrong because it was a very odd situation. Um, One I don't think we've ever seen before in Formula 1. I can't remember something like this happening. So... Sonoda was one of the one of the lapped cars, um, but there was a, it was basically a weird um, situation that arose from the sort of layout of the circuit, the timing system, and Sonoda's own um, behaviour, if that's the right word, in terms of uh, where his car was at certain points. Um, so he was lapped and in the queue, but he came into the pits, and I think because of that. And the fact that he was then obviously able to accelerate and go faster than the safety car queue, he did technically briefly unlap himself. And the way that the, I guess, the system works, the way that the rules are, technically in doing that, obviously he then fell back into the queue, I guess, because of the actual pit stop itself. He had technically unlapped himself. And the what the steward said is that you can't actually unlap yourself more than once. So... Once he was back in the queue and in the behind the safety car, when the instruction comes for lapped cars may overtake and unlap themselves, Sonoda's not eligible for that privilege because he has technically already unlapped. I'm explaining this really badly, but it is such a odd and confusing situation. So then I think Sonoda did. Honestly, I thought I thought he did a really good job when the race started for real and he just pulled off to the left and and slowed right down. And I think that's what um, spooked Ferrari and Sainz because with, with with him doing that, I think there was a suggestion that Sainz might have overtaken Sonoda before he was allowed to, which would have been, a, if, if that had been the case, what a ridic- that would have been a ridiculous penalty to, to, to hit Sainz with if, you know, a car that has moved out of the way because he's effectively only in the queue as a lapsed car because of an incompetency within the the timing system or whatever it is. Because basically no one did anything wrong in race control really with how this was handled. It was just, it really was just a strange anomaly. 
yeah, it's just that momentarily being ahead in the pit lane and then falling behind and then, yeah, causes a fair bit of confusion. Next up is a question from Sean Murphy for you, Mark. Watching medium shot Perez tumble down the field against rivals on soft, some of whom are driving cars that are usually slower than the Red Bull, had me wondering if Pirelli tyre offsets have become too important a factor in Formula One. What do you guys think? And would you like to see a tyre war again with multiple tyre companies? Um, yeah, I've always advocated that um, the racing is better and um, more interesting with a tyre war. Um, it was legislated out on the grounds of costs, but um, I think, you know, looking longer term, looking beyond the current contracts, um, if you've got a cost cap in place, why can't you say, well, you know, the cost cap's still in place, but um, anybody that wants to compete, um, you know, in, in, in supplying tyres can. Um, I think that's perfectly, it's still, I think it's a perfectly doable thing. And um, I think it would add great interest and uh, a bit of um, competitive, uh, you know, ups, ups and downs and a bit, of unpre- bit more unpredictability. Next up for you, Scott. Henri Hayler asks, after another race where a car has been affected by a loose tear-off, what can realistically be done to reduce the amount of tear-offs littered around the track? Now, this is about Carlos Sainz, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, I honestly don't know. Uh, Is it still the case, or did this get phased out, that you're not allowed to do tear-offs in a certain part? But I can't remember where it is. Is it like you're not allowed to do it in the pit lane or something like that you can only do it in the pit lane i'm sure there was a point recently where they did try to clamp down on on tear off use yeah there's a lot of talk about even having a little place you could put them in the cockpit to stop you throwing them out have a little recycling bag or something just inside (laughs) just on the right hand side or something it was felt to be a little bit impractical so it is just one of those things that that seems to be unavoidable i mean there are certain little frameworks about what you shouldn't what you should or shouldn't do in terms of doing it but fundamentally it is a bit of film that's chucked out of the car and it also can sometimes get caught in your own car which is why i think you see some drivers do a proper like arm right up out of the cockpits but and then and then release just to make sure but they they are kind of a bit of a necessary evil in that regard because obviously you get all sorts of crap thrown up on your on your on your visor during the course of a grand prix and the concept of a tear off even in the most basic form it goes back quite a long way doesn't it i feel like it it's not a put it this it's not a recent technology is it no no long long established tear-offs and they're there for a reason so it's one of those slightly awkward things in that obviously yes it would be good to avoid but they haven't quite worked out a way to to do it but it is frustrating to be fair it doesn't happen that often that it's it normally sandwich bags and stuff like that that are the offending things in brake ducts and whatnot, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Sergei Sorotkin had a sandwich bag incident, didn't he, with Williams? And there's another one more recently. Obviously, I remember the Sorotkin one for, for some reason. But yeah, the um, the tear-offs, I think, are going to be probably here to stay unless someone can come up with some other good technology to, uh, to eliminate them. Mark, the final question is simply from Sean. Has this weekend's sprint race shown that they can be a valuable addition to the race weekend as long as the right tracks are chosen? Yeah, absolutely, and and Brazil suggests itself as as, as one of the the most suitable, um, and I think if we, I don't know, we're talking about six of them next year. As, as long as we have six tracks that are good enough to to sort of mix it up in the way that it has this weekend, then I think that's about as far as I'd want to go. But yeah, definitely, it, 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 it's it's very important to. Um, I think it's only to, it's only suitable for um, a certain um, layout of track. Um, it would be a disaster at some others. And in terms of the sprint race, it does help when you've got a scrambled grid because that tends to create interesting things. And obviously, that's exactly what we had. Sprint races, do you think this is a ringing endorsement of them, Scott? I don't think this sprint race really told me anything about the the format that I didn't already think, which is that it, it it can improve the, the the weekend. The race itself is dependent on circumstances, like pretty much any any races. But there can be a good race, but you do need the right circuit. You do need the right circumstances around it, and it does make the weekend better overall. I just wish they'd find a way to get rid of that damn FP two session on Saturday. Although it came in handy for Logan Sargent and Williams this weekend because he picked up another bonus point, uh, super license bonus point in his bid for an F one super license and a twenty twenty three race seat. But just on the subject of the sprint and the quality of this weekend to pick up on something Mark said quickly. Um, 
it really is a proper pleasure every, every time we come back to Interlagos and I go into that 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 place and that that circuit and think I I think it might it, it's a contender for the best Grand Prix of the year just all round as in like the best circuit one of, it's absolutely one of the best circuits F1 goes to I really struggle to think, like there are just only a really small number that are just not just the steeped in history stuff but just actually the layout lends itself to really good racing um the locate the climate that you're in locally is really good in terms of you know there's the threat of rain and stuff like this and mixing it up um the fans are absolutely mad like they're they're absolutely they're so fantastic i it's just nice to get to the end of what has been a really long season and at times it's felt like it's really dragged and you come here and you're like oh, i'm glad that we're here for race 21 or 22 because this this is proper it's such a great grand prix yeah, I'd thoroughly endorse that Interlagos. Great circuit for F1 racing. And thanks very much to everyone who asked questions. You can find out more about the Race Members Club if you head to the race and click on Join the Race. Now, to finish off, we wanted to let you know that the first live The Race F1 podcast event is happening next February. It's on February the 12th at King's Place in King's Cross, London, as part of Pod Live Sport, a week-long sport podcast festival. I'll be there, so no escaping me. So will Scott, and there's going to be a special guest as we finalise the lineup for that as well. So head to sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod hyphen live forward slash the hyphen race hyphen f1 for ticket information i think if you make your way to the sportspodcastgroup.com website you'll probably be able to find our particular podcast don't forget the hyphens in this case many many hyphens there for people maybe we could also drop a link to that in the podcast description for this one as well we certainly could you lucky listeners. All that's left now is to say thanks to Scott and Mark for everything you had to say. To remind all our listeners to keep an eye on the race.com and don't forget the hyphen for all the latest news and analysis. And of course, to check out our other podcasts and our YouTube channel. There's one more Grand Prix to go. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic. 